Andre Dawson, Hall of Famer from the Chicago Cubs, and you're listening to the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast featuring everybody's favorite coach, Coach Manaman. Follow him on Twitter at Coach Manaman. This is the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast. I am Coach Manaman. Thank you for listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other major podcast platforms. For the latest news and notes and baseball content from the tri-state area, find us on social media, Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, and at Coach Manaman on Twitter. Welcome back to the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast. As always, this is everybody's favorite coach, Coach Manaman, and today we are in for a treat. I have been watching this story every single year since the movie The Final Season was released, and our guest today is a motivational and inspirational speaker. He is an author. He's an educator, so he gets huge props in my book and currently works in the banking field, but you would know him as Kent Stock from the final season. His story was turned into a major motion pitcher. Kent, welcome to the podcast. You grew up in Iowa. When did you fall in love with the game of baseball? Well, first of all, Coach, thanks for having me on. I just... I've been following you for quite a while, and I thought someday I want to be, be on this podcast, so today's the day. But I grew up in Ankeny, Iowa. I can't remember when I didn't love baseball. My mom tells a story of when I was a little baby, I'd be in the crib. I'd wake up from a nap, and she'd put me on the floor, and she said, I always reached out and grabbed a ball, and I would throw it, you know, roll it to her. So she always tells me, she said, when you're out on your speaking engagements, you make sure you tell people mom played catch with you first. It wasn't your dad, you know? So, um, I, I just remember always loving baseball. Um, probably one of the turning points in my life was 1971. I was 10 years old and my mom and dad took me, my older sister, my younger brother to Bush stadium in St. Louis. And I thought I was in heaven. That was going to be my future place of employment. You know, I was going to be Bob Gibson shortstop someday, you know? So, we get into Bush Stadium and, and got to see Bob Gibson win his 200th game, and I fell in love ever since. And it's to this day, you know, I've been tracking as a Cardinal fan. I've been very excited with Albert Pujols, you know, getting number 700 and been tracking Aaron, Aaron Judge trying to get 61, 62 home runs. So it's been a very important part of my life. Um, it's not everything of who I am, but it's something that I sure love watching, playing, everything about it. Kent, you mentioned heaven, and we know that not too far from me is the field of dreams. Is this heaven? No, it's Iowa. I recently saw on Twitter, you were out at the field of dreams. You are a Luther grad for the Luther College game. What was that experience like? I was um, out of town in Chicago that weekend, and holy cow, the videos I saw, they had quite the turnout for it. What was it like to be there in person and to be a Luther alum? Oh, it was amazing. I tell you, when they, they came out a year ago, Coach Nicola at Luther uh, posted that they were going to be the first college collegiate game to play on the Field of Dreams, and they're playing Briarcliff. And about three months ago, I heard him say, 
you know, we're going to have an alumni game beforehand. I immediately, you know, got a hold of Coach Nichols, said, I'm all in. I had knee replacement surgery November 1st of last year. And my wife said, if you blow that knee out, and I said, I'm not going to blow my knee out. I just want to swing the bat. That's what I want to do. And so it ended up being Luther versus Luther in alumni in the alumni game. And walking out there onto that field, was amazing. I bet there was three to 5,000 people, Luther fans, Briarcliff fans, and it just felt like, you know, Friday night lights, you know, it felt like game night. And it was so cool to be able to swing the bat and field some ground balls. And just, it was amazing. Surprisingly enough, with my love of baseball, that's the very first time I've been on Field of Dreams, never been there. So it was pretty special. I'm glad you got to enjoy the experience. I'm curious, did you walk in through the corn for the alumni game, or did you just walk in from uh, the sidelines there? Yeah, we were we were just the alumni, so we just came from our parking lot and came out and threw some jerseys on. Coach Nickel, Luther's coach, bought us all uh, jerseys, so we had got a Luther jersey to throw on, and um, so it was pretty cool. But we did, after the game, when the varsity or, you know, the – Luther and Briar Cliff were playing. There was about 10 guys from my era of when I played at Luther that were back, um, all the way from Spokane, Washington. Dave Cotton came back and Kevin Dotsa from, you know, Johnston, all over. People came back for it. We did our own little uh, shot of walking out of the corn, you know, and so have that as a memory that I'll forever keep. I spilled the beans a little bit on my next question, but it was about you and where you played college baseball at and where did you play high school baseball at and what type of player were you coming up through the ranks? Yeah, I, I was, as I said, born and raised in Ankeny, uh, played Little League. So my dad was my first Little League coach when I was like eight years old. And, you know, I played shortstop, played third base, pitched, did everything. As I went on and got into high school, then I became a second base. I played second base at Ankeny. And I was probably best known in high school as a, a defensive player. Um, you know, I probably hit 290 or, you know, 300. But wasn't, you know, I was a leadoff hitter, but wasn't the best hitter. It wasn't until I went to uh, Waldorf College. It was a junior college back then in Forest City, Iowa. Then the baseball coach, Jim Hayden, he gave every one of us on the team that were hitters the book Art of Hitting, or Art of Hitting 400 by Charlie Lau. And I just, you know, studied that book. I always said if they had a major in college that was baseball or baseball trivia, I'd have been summa cum laude. But, you know, I studied that book, Charlie Lau. And it was, you know, I started my freshman and sophomore year. We were ranked 13th in the nation in junior college. And that's where I really became a hitter. And after two years at, at Waldorf, you know, I was hoping to get drafted to play pro baseball or, you know, hoping to get a Division One scholarship. But no one came calling, so I transferred to Luther College in Decorah and ended up becoming a shortstop there and the number three, number four hitter on the team. So that, you know, really progressed with my hitting as I, as I got into college and just – Absolutely loved my college experience of playing baseball. What gave you the itch to become a coach? Well, you know, it all started with, uh, you know, as a kid, my goal in life was to be a professional baseball player. You know, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't get drafted out of high school. And, 
didn't know where I was going to go to college, ended up at Waldorf College and Luther College. And then when I wasn't drafted, I thought every mentor in my life has been other than my parents. They've been my coaches, you know, or teachers and coaches. And I thought no better way to pay them back than become a, a coach myself. You know, I remember graduating from Luther College. My dad was a teacher at Des Moines East and he was able to talk to the baseball coach. And I ended up being the assistant varsity baseball coach at at Des Moines East the summer before I took my first job at Belle Plaine. And I remember going off to Belle Plaine to interview for the job. And, you know, the superintendent says, we'll get back back to you in a couple days. And he called and said, Kent, I'd like to offer you our high school business education teaching position. And we also have some coaching. He goes, how would you like to be our junior high girls volleyball coach? And I was crushed. You know, I wanted to be a baseball coach, but – I had my parents in the background saying, take the job, move out of the house. You need to start making some money. So off I went to Bell Plain and just fell in love with coaching. I, you know, coaching junior high girls a year later, I was a varsity volleyball coach. And, you know, that was my new passion was, uh, was being a volleyball coach and just loved being a mentor, whether it was in a role model, whether it was junior high girls, high school boys, whatever it was, that was my new passion. So. Um, fell in love with coaching. That was the best way to, for me to pay back all of the mentors in my life. Just jumping on the volleyball train here. I coached volleyball for many years in middle school and volleyball is a very underrated sport. It is an exciting sport. There's a lot of strategy that goes to that, but that that's a whole nother episode. People that are listening to this know you, from the story of the final season. And if there's anybody that has not seen the final season, could you give them a quick synopsis of the movie before I get into some questions about the movie? Well, the, the, the story goes is that, um, you know, I was Jim Vanskoy's assistant coach for one year, which is an amazing story, how I got that position. But you know, the, the state, there was a lot of talk in 1990 about the state stepping in and closing down Norway. And I asked Coach Vansko, I said, is there any truth to this rumor they're closing down Norway and merging us with the Benton community? And he goes, ah, he says, it'll never happen. Well, that fall of 1990, I was back in Belle Plaine coaching volleyball, and Coach Vanskoy called me and he said, <coughs> excuse me, he said, Kent, it's a given. They're closing down Norway. And they said to him that, he could coach the team in that last season, but he wouldn't have a coaching job when they merged with Benton community. And he also wouldn't have a teaching position. So he was lucky enough to have the opportunity to be the class A pitching coach for the Detroit Tigers in Niagara Falls. And he said, I'm going to take that job. That's been a dream of mine. He said, would you take this team in their final season? So we go through this final season in Norway, a town of 586 people. <clears throat> had three former Major League Baseball players. Hal Trotsky played for the Cleveland Indians in the 30s and 40s. They had uh, Bruce Kim, who was a personal catcher for Mark the Bird Fidrich. Uh, he coached in professional baseball for a long time. He was third base coach for Jim Leland, like with the Pirates and wherever Jim Leland went. And he ended up being, becoming a, the manager for the Iowa Cubs in Des Moines and when one of their head coaches, I think it was Don Baylor, got fired, Bruce Kim went up as the interim 
manager for, for the Chicago Cubs. And then probably the most famous Norway baseball player was Mike Boddicker, uh, World Series ring with the Baltimore Orioles. Um, so, you know, small town of 586 people. And I'd followed them as a little kid. You know, I'd get the Des Moines Register, the big peach section, and I'd watch every all-state team. So I knew all about this little Norway baseball team in town. And and uh, so, you know, when I'm coaching, we go into that final season. When I got there, Norway had won 18 state championships in 23 years. And that year, as their assistant coach, we won their 19th. And so now here I am, this young kid baseball coach coaching this legendary team going for their 20th and final state championship. I remember meeting with the boys before the season even started. And I said, come on guys, let's set some goals. The room went silent. And finally my center fielder, Eric freeze, he just raises his hand. He says, coach, we only have one goal. That's to win Norway's 20th and final state championship. So you talk about pressure. And on top of that, we had a Des Moines register, uh, feature writer wasn't even a sports reporter. He was a feature writer. He had contacted me prior to the season. He said, Hey, I'm going to do a big feature article towards the end of the season. Can I hang out at some of your practices? Can I go to your games? And he ended up coming to a lot of practices and he was at every game. He'd ride the school bus with us and, and he just followed me everywhere I went along with, uh, Dave, uh, Ken Fusen was his name and Dave Peterson was a photographer. So he'd come out and take all kinds of pictures and, so not only did I have the stress of, of, you know, the final season, coaching them in the final season with one goal, also had two Des Moines Register re- reporters and photographers that were there every game. Well, it ended up becoming, I became good friends with the Des Moines Register guys, and so that wasn't as stressful. But then we went on and made it to the state championship game, and we won Norway's 20th and final state championship. And... It was about October of that year. I got a phone call from a man by the name of Tony Wilson from Des Moines. He said, I answered the phone. He goes, hi, Kent. This is Tony Wilson, movie producer from Des Moines. And I hung up on him. I thought of some of my golf playing coaching buddies playing a trick on me. But, you know, he persevered. He called back and ended up signing a movie contract. I told him, I said, this story isn't about me. It's about the 14 boys on the town. It's on the team. It's about Jim Vanskoy. It's about all 586 people in the community. And eventually I introduced Tony to uh, Coach Vanskoy and Coach and I in February of 1992. We signed a movie contract with Tony, basically selling him two years of our life story. And fast forward, signing the contract in 92, the, the movie was filmed in 2006. So it wasn't an easy process. Automotive Care Solutions is a proud sponsor of the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast. ACS is owned and operated by Nate Dirt Hall and is located in beautiful downtown Dyersville. ACS offers services such as exterior and interior detailing, buffing, waxing, ceramic coating, rust proofing, and undercoating. They welcome all cars, trucks, tractors, semis, campers, boats, and so much more. To make your appointment convenient, they also offer a courtesy vehicle. Pickup and drop-offs are available within a 15-mile radius of Dyersville. To request a quote or schedule an appointment, call 
563-581-8244 or email acsdyersville at gmail.com. The final season has a special place in my heart because that was the first team get-together I ever had where I invited players from my team and welcomed them into my home and we watched the final season. And that Norway ball field was my home field when I played in the first ever perfect game league in fall. Wow. Yeah, and we were not able to lead off growing up so we played fall baseball to prepare us for high school so we would know how to hold runners and and how to lead off and jim started that with perfect game and that's what led us to norway that's where we played double headers every week and when i was coaching i would roughly two weeks before the season would start, I would watch a different baseball movie every single night to get me ready for the season. And the final season made its way into that mix when it was released. Were you happy with the final cut of the movie after you uh, saw it? Yeah, I I was very happy. Um, You know, you think about 2000 or 1992 signing the contract wasn't filmed till 2006. Um, It took Tony uh, about five, six years of interviewing, even longer, 2000, you know, probably seven, eight years of interviewing and, and getting the story right. And I remember him sending the very first script of the movie to me and reading it. And I thought, oh man, this is awesome. Got tears in my eyes and loved it. But nobody from Hollywood came calling. So fast forward eight scripts later, finally is when uh, David Mickey Evans read the script and Many of you don't know David Mickey Evans by name, but you'll know his greatest work. David Mickey Evans was the writer and director of the movie Sandlot. And so he read it and he goes, I want to be the director on this movie. And then Sean Astin read it and he said, I want to play Kent Stock. So fast forward from 100% true, the very first script was 100% true to, you know, script number nine was probably about 70% true, 30% Hollywood embellishment. But I felt like they gave me script control. Um, you know, if there was, I always read it through the lens of my mom was going to see this movie. And if my mom wouldn't be happy about something, you know, I, I didn't want it to be in there, but never got out of control. You know, it, it was a, it was a script. I was okay with the Hollywood embellishments and, and <clears throat> David Mickey Evans, <clears throat> even when, on set, he would change the script as we're filming a scene, you know, he would edit and cut and make some different changes. So, but everything came out perfect as far as I was concerned. And a little tidbit about Sean Ashton Scott is uh, he was huge in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And also, uh, I believe his dad was Gomez Adams in the Adams Family original TV show, which... which Yes, he was. And he was Rudy. That was probably the most famous movie that Sean Astin was in. He played Rudy. And yeah, he was Sam Gamgee in Lord of the Rings and um, very cool. And his mom is uh, Patty Duke. So comes from a, a very Hollywood style family. I'm glad you mentioned Rudy because that kind of leads into my, my next question here. 
I, I have a odd hobby of I like to watch movies based on true stories or inspired by true stories and then go back and research them to find out what was um, added in or what was left out. And Rudy was a complete, really big embellishment. A lot of that um, story was was made up to produce a good Hollywood story. One of my favorite movies is Remember the Titans and a lot of those close games in real life were not close at all. They were blowouts. Right. Was there anything that was left out of the final season that you wish that part of your story or the team story or the town story would have been told? And was there anything that Hollywood put in there to either stretch the truth or did they add a character <laughs> or were the protagonists and the antagonists or the bad guys of the good guys, if you're not in my, uh, if not in my English class, that were thrown in the movie just, just to have a villain to, to dislike? Yeah, you know, there were a lot of embellishments. Probably the one that uh, I get asked about a lot is they said, Ken, you had a Camaro, you know, because Sean Aston drives a Camaro, you know, in the movie. And and I said, no, I had a Geo Metro and it was, you know, that that wouldn't have looked very cool. Me driving a little Geo Metro. But, you know, so they embellished that, things like that. You know, I fell in love with the school board attorney in the movie. My wife gets asked all the time. I didn't know you were, a, you know, an attorney, school board attorney. And she goes, I didn't even know Kent in 1991. So, you know, they had to throw a love interest in it. And so that was, you know, that was pretty cool. They have to do things that attracts different types of audiences. So if you just have a baseball movie, you limit yourself to, you know, one audience. So they try to make it a love story. Um, one of the things that was really hard is the Norway superintendent was really a really good guy. In the movie, they make the superintendent out to be the villain. And kind of gives me goosebumps saying this, but prior to um, filming the movie and it coming out, uh, the superintendent's daughter actually reached out to Tony Wilson, the movie producer, and whose you know dream it was to make this movie and said, I hope you don't make my dad out to be a bad guy. And sure enough, that's exactly what it was. But he kind of he explained to her the reason and how you had to do that. And not that there wasn't a person just like the superintendent, a villain, but he was a member of the school board, not the superintendent. So, you know, it was some hard feelings during the filming of that movie. Um, there was a lot of angst and animosity between Norway and Benton community during this time. And, and uh, you know, it wasn't so much Norway hated Benton. You know, both towns were, you know, both school districts weren't exactly happy about it. So, you know, I think they made all the anger coming just from Norway people, you know, but it was kind of both ways. Um, you know, as far as anything left out, you know, in the movie, nothing with the boys, nothing with the team, you know, they did a great job with that. I guess if anything that I wished would have been portrayed in the movie was my relationship with my parents and how I became to love the, the game of baseball and things like that. But you can't put everything into a movie, you know, you got to, kind of box it into a certain number of years. So, um, but my mom and dad were able to be extras in the movie and you can freeze frame and see them in the movie and that'll always forever be with them and uh, me. And, and 
but mom was okay with all the embellishments. One of the other embellishments was that, you know, the kid from Chicago, you know, there was Mitch Akers, you know, his dad was a Norway guy and he moved his son in with his, his mom and dad, grandpa and grandma in Norway. You know, that wasn't true, but there was a, a, a character on the team that was just like Mitch Akers, but he just didn't so happen to come from Chicago. So, you know, they did some embellishment by that. And even talking with the boys on the team, they didn't care. They thought, no, nah, we love the movie. Everything was fine. So it, it worked out and turned out to be okay. The father of that boy was Tom Arnold from Iowa. And also his dad in the movie, Mitch Akers, his grandpa was Lou Brown from the comedy <laughs> classic Major League. Another one of the Hollywood embellishment things that it, it really is kind of a, a, a sad story a little bit. You know, in the in the movie, there's a scene where the bus driver on a way to a game is driving the bus. And it's a dad of one of one of my players and Kyle Schmidt, actually, his dad, Francis Schmidt, would drive the bus. And so in the movie, they have a scene where he's driving the bus to a game and he has a heart attack while he's driving the bus and it goes off into a cornfield. And the real story was that in the state championship game, when we were at the top of the seventh, we were down four to three with two outs and two strikes on Kyle Schmidt, my first baseman. His dad has a heart attack while his son is at the plate. And we didn't even know it. And then Kyle Schmidt gets a double. And then the next guy stepped up, drives him in, we tie the game, we go into extra innings, and when we get into extra innings, after the, we end up scoring three runs in the, in the top of the eighth and hold them in the bottom of the eighth, and we win the game seven to four, win in the 20th and final state championship. We're going, getting ready to celebrate, and out on the field comes one of the other parents and says, Kent, you know, we need to take Kyle. Kyle's dad just had a heart attack. And so Kyle had to leave and, and he ended up going to the hospital. He hooked up with us later when we were eating our dinner at Perkins celebrating the big win in Marshalltown, you know. But so when when David Mickey Evans and the writer put it in the middle of the movie, I asked him, I said, why'd you do that? And they said, this is a perfect example of where the real life story is like so untrue to people that they would say, for sure, that's Hollywood embellishment. The dad wouldn't have a heart attack in the middle of his son's at bat in the last game. So David felt like they had to move that to the middle of, of the of the movie. So And it played well. It did really well. One of the neat things, the very first day David Mickey Evans arrives in Norway, you know, he showed up like three months prior to the start of the filming of the movie, you know, to set up a pre-production office and everything. The very first day that they took him out to the Norway baseball field. So you're thinking from 91 to 2006, Francis Schmidt had passed away the week before David came to Iowa. And when he walked on the Norway field, the funeral procession drove by. So, you know, you talk about a goose month moment, you know, of wow, how everything comes full circle. So, you know, it, it worked out well. But uh, you mentioned Lou Brown, you know, the, the grandpa in the movie. One of the greatest stories, you know, we we raised all the money. They're not me, but the producers raised all the money to film this movie right here in Iowa. And so in the middle of, of filming, we, we always had uh, Mondays off 
So we did an investor party on a Sunday night and all the actors, which they work six days a week and they're not used to working six days a week, but they all came out for this investment party and all the actors were there and somebody kind of goaded uh, um, Jimmy Gammons, who was Lou Brown in, in Major League. They got him to, to do his is one of the scenes and he got up in front of that whole audience and he started, you make run like A's, but you, you know, and that whole thing. And he did that imitation and the place just, it brought down the house. It was so funny. And what a cool man. I was so blessed to have great actors who just every day, a new actor would arrive on set and, and I would just go up to him and say, Hey, thank you for coming here to Iowa and help tell my story. And, They'd look at me and says, no, thank you. We're just glad to be here, and we love Iowa, and we love the scenery, and we're just so happy to tell your story. So, And Jimmy Gammons was one of them, just a great, great man. Are you still in contact with any of the guys from the team that won the state championship during that final season? A- absolutely. You know, I, I, I see them around town, a lot of them. majority of them still live in the area, Cedar Rapids area, some – couple still live in Norway, but I see them out and about all the time. Uh, obviously friends with them on Facebook and things like that and social media. But every year, uh, they, they establish the Norway, um, baseball association. And so they do a fundraiser every January and have a dinner. So I go out to that every year and, and reconnect a lot of the baseball players from my era when I was there and many eras before and after that. Are there. So, yeah, I still see them still, you know, I was like one of them, you know, that was a young kid. I think I was 27 when I was assistant and 28 and, you know, I, I would take batting practice with them. And, you know, now I look at them and they're a bunch of old men. So what's that make me? I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Did you Homer like the movie portrayed to get the guys to stop giving you crap about being a volleyball coach? Yeah, you, you, you're gonna you're gonna you know push me on these embellishment things. I tell people when they ask, they said, "Did you really hit hit that out on the third pitch?" And I said, "No, I hit it out on the first pitch that they threw to me." But that was again Hollywood embellishment. Um, I took batting practice with them all the time, you know, when I was the assistant. And so you know, Tony Wilson, the producer of the movie, he interviewed me a hundred times, you know, for hours upon hours upon hours. And I would just tell stories like we're telling right now. And he would take things like I took batting practice. Well, that went into a great scenario to set up of me, you know, taking batting practice and hit, you know, challenge them that I'd hit a home run if they quit giving me crap about being a volleyball coach. You know, again, they 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 portrayed me as kind of a, a little bit of a villain when I started out as a head coach, where, in fact, I'd been with them for a year. They knew who I was. You know, they knew what I was all about, but they did razz me about volleyball, being a volleyball coach. You know, some first week of practice that year that I was a head coach, I'd see them with a the baseball. They go bump, set, spike, and just giving me crap in a, you know, in a funny sort of way. The baseball coach in me loves and hates that scene because I, I watched it last night. And all the guys watching are lined up on the third baseline. I'm like, I hope he doesn't get the first time I saw it. I'm like, I hope he doesn't get an inside pitch and turn it and, you know, smoke somebody in the face or something. But, uh, I thought that same exact thing. 
Yeah, it's, it's funny the little tidbits you get when you watch it with baseball coaches and baseball people that I don't get when I watch it with my daughter or or I, I watch it with um with yeah. my wife who has really no in no uh stake in the game when it comes to baseball. She just goes to whatever game I have an extra ticket to. I, I want you to think back to not the movie, but the actual final season. And also think about some of the other people involved. What feelings and emotions did you, the team, and the town have during that final home game? And then also the same question, but during every single elimination game, and especially that state championship game that could have ultimately had been the final game. Well, I tell you, you know, it, it brings back the same emotion I had then I, number one, winning the state championship, I was just elated. Um, I felt so much stress, and it was self-induced because the town of Norway didn't put a lot of stress on me. They were going through this, you know, horrific change of what their town was going to be like without a high school, you know. And so we started off the season really, really slow. We weren't playing that well. Um, you know, I think our record ended up being like 31 and 11 or 31 and 10 and you know which sounds like a great record but no Norway team ever lost double digit had double digit losses but those boys had so much pressure on them you know going to town hall meetings and seeing this table argue with this table over you know the merger and yelling and screaming that finally it got to be a respite for them to to come to that uh the baseball field and just to get away from all the noise that was going on in the, the community, you know, and we started getting on a roll and you talk about that, that last home game, it was a double header against Cedar Rapids Jefferson. You know, Jim Vanskoy set up the schedule. We played all four, a school, three, a and four, a schools. We, you know, we had a conference of like only four teams in our conference. It was Norway, uh, deep river, Millersburg, Don Bosco and Iowa Mennonite. So we would play those teams in our conference that were our class, but we played all these 4A schools. And so we started getting on this roll, and we get down. We're facing the number one pitcher in the state from Cedar Rapids, Jefferson, and he beats us one to nothing. And the boys weren't down. They knew they just faced probably the toughest you know, pitcher that they were going to ever face in high school. And we get to the second game of the doubleheader, and – I was so nervous thinking this is our last game before we start tournaments. And he, those boys were just on fire. You could hear a pin drop for the game. They were really, uh, not emotional group of guys. They were just calm, cool and collected. Like my old high school, you know, base, basketball coach used to say, calm, cool, collected. It's just like the old gunfighter, you know, in the Western movies, you know, and that's what these guys were. They were just, they weren't afraid of anybody. They had no fear of anybody, but this game meant so much going into the tournaments, and we ended up winning that second game of the doubleheader, and they portray it awesome in the movie, you know, how, you know, Mitch Aker slides into third, and, you know, it just, it gives me goosebumps just talking about it, but the team after that, I finally saw a celebration from them, you know, where they really were pumped up and fired up over that win, and so then, you know, Back in the day, there was only four teams that made it to the state tournament. So we had to play like six elimination games just to get to the state tournament. 
And every game, you know, is pins and needles. This is going to be over. Uh, probably in the district finals, it was the game before Substate. We were playing, uh, Bellevue Marquette at, uh, at, at, uh, North, North Cedar now is Clarence Loudon then. And it was like the, the bottom of the seventh inning. We were up by one run and they had like one runner on. They had a nice left-handed hitter come up. He turns and corks on a pitch heading out to right field down the line and umpire goes foul ball. We ended up getting him out. We won the game. The, my right fielder comes in. He goes, coach, that ball was fair. So you think about one little call and it was a tough call, you know, cause it, you know, foul poles aren't like they have it in the major leagues where they're, you know, 50 feet up in the air. It's just a little, you know, eight foot pole going on the right field corner. So it was a tough call. Um, don't blame the umpire. I'm, I've talked to a lot of kids from Bellevue Marquette over the last 30 years that have said that ball was a home run. You know that. And I go, yep, my right fielder told me. So, you know, there's a lot of elation then, but still we hadn't accomplished the go- the team's goal of winning, going to, you know, winning the state championship. I remember we were playing uh, in the sub-state final to make it to the state tournament. We were down at Muscatine and we were playing Burlington, Notre Dame. They were ranked number one all year long. We were ranked number two. And I think we beat them like nine to four. And I got on the bus. Bus was quiet. Boys weren't celebrating. And I'm thinking, in my mind, they were saying, we didn't accomplish our goal yet. But to me, I'd accomplished a goal that I had internally of making it to the state tournament. So I kind of, you know, was doing some hooting and hollering internally, but couldn't show the team that, that I was. And then, you get down to that state championship game where we were down four to three with two outs and two strikes on Kyle Schmidt. And, you know, he hits a double. Next guy, Brad, uh, Brad Groff steps up. He hits a double, ties a game. We go into extra innings, make two great defensive plays. And that, when we ended it in the bottom of the eighth and we held them and win, winning at seven to four to win the 20th and final state championship, that's when I truly saw the boys celebrate. But I learned something the year before from Coach Vanskoy when I was his assistant and we won the state championship. On that final out, I was jumping up out of the dugout, ready to go out on the field, and Coach just kind of put his arm out, and he goes, this one's for them. It's not about us. You know, it's, it's their celebration. You know, and I kind of learned something that it wasn't about me. And by going out there, you know, I, I don't oppose anybody, a manager or coach going out and celebrating, but, you know, to think about his reasoning of that wasn't to say, you know, we couldn't celebrate, but it was more like let them have their time. So that was pretty cool. And to see them really, you know, celebrate. Little tidbit for my Dyersville Beckman people, the left-handed pitcher in that was Billy Martin from Dyersville Beckman. His dad was Fred Martin, who just retired from coaching at Beckman. And I played perfect game with Billy. Another thing that that Kent mentioned that I want our youth and I want people to really listen to, I think baseball is, is a great place where you can step out on the field and what's ever going on in your personal life, whatever struggles you're, you're having. He talked about the boys having to read the articles and go to these meetings of, you know, teams and parents and um, community members arguing and fighting with each other. And the only place they could forget about it was 
on the baseball field. I remember a season where in during that summer, my daughter was diagnosed with autism and I was going through a divorce and having to deal with lawyers and having to deal with what's the future of, of my, my daughter at the time. And the only place where I felt at home was on the baseball field where I didn't think about what was going to happen in my custody agreement or um, what her college life was going to be like or what it was going to be like being a single dad. And and if it's not baseball, it could be any curricular, extracurricular activity, whether it be volleyball or theater, or the trumpet or uh, make your parents go crazy and ask them to buy you a drum set, but just something to take to take your mind. So, Kent, thanks for throwing that in. I, I really appreciate that. One question I have, Reed Ellis. I'm glad I rewatched this movie. I've seen this movie so many times and I wasn't going to watch it, but I watched it the other night before I was going to sit down and connect with you again. He was made out in the movie to be this draft prospect and this, he was the pitcher in the state championship game. Was he really that good? Was he a draft prospect or was that just added in for Hollywood effect? And if he was that good, did he ever pan out? He was that good. Um, he wasn't a draft prospect. Um, he was a stud pitcher. I mean, this guy could paint the corners. He didn't throw 93 miles an hour. Um, he was probably mid to upper 80s, but he was a great pitcher. You know, Jill Grove of South Clay they didn't expect to be in the state tournament. Uh, the reason I found that out years later is that that pitcher, who was Reed Ellis in the movie, he was getting married that night because the next week he was heading off and, and he enlisted into the Army and was leaving. So he got married that night after the state championship game. You know, back then we played all, all state championships on the same day and started out at 10 in the morning, the 1A all the way up to 4A. And so, you know, we played at 10 o'clock, game was done at noon, and he went back home and, and got married. So they won. He was like 11 or 12 and 0 that year, um, but their record was nothing stellar. You know, they won every time he pitched. So he was very, very good, but Hollywood had to embellish the the 93-mile-an-hour fastball or whatever it was in, in, in that, but – he was a great pitcher, and it's been pretty cool. I've connected with a, a lot of uh, uh, players, a few of the players from Gillett Grove. Over the past year, I met the center fielder, David Elser, uh, through Twitter. He started following me, and, and we've kind of connected. And, and I got out the – I still have the same old score sheets from, from that 91 season, and I got out and took a picture and – he was like one for five that day, and he said, oh, I had a bad day, you know. But it's been cool to, to hear stories from people and them telling me about what they've done, you know, after they graduated from Gillette Grove. And, you know, the same thing happened to their school, you know, a few years later after Norway was closed down and merged with Benton Community. They had the same thing happen to them. People listening to this for the first time, if you're here in Kent Store, you will know that I'm an English teacher by some of these words that I'm using. And, and my next question, I'm going to ask him here. One of the major characters in the movie that people very rarely would even notice is the town of Norway. 
What happened to the town of Norway after the school and the baseball program closed down? The movie was concerned that it was going to be a ghost town. Local businesses would close down and the town would really struggle economically. What's happened to them since the final season and since filming's wrapped up on the movie? Yeah, you know, it's really hard when a small town loses their high school. You know, uh, I coached in a small town for 13 years, Bell Plain. It wasn't 586. It was more like, you know, 2,000 people. But the high school is the hub of those communities. You know, it just creates a buzz. You know, the kids are in all their activities from band, choir, orchestra, school plays, baseball, you know, basketball. They're doing all those things, and it's just a, an excitement that it brings to a small town. And so I think some of that luster has been lost. Um, you know, the kids don't stay there anymore. A lot of kids would just, you know, go to college, come back, and live in Norway. Um, they're moving away. Um, stores have closed, you know, the few stores that they had. Um, still have the filling station, the gas station, the quick handy mart or quick what whatever quick mark that they have in town. But, you know, it's just, it's not a dying community because there's still a lot of, I still have a lot of good friends, be one of them being Jim Vanskoy that still lives in, in Norway. And, but I think they've seen the change. Uh, one thing I was very proud of though, in the movie, you talk about the character, the town of Norway absolutely was a character in this movie. And I thought David Mickey Evans and the cinematographer, did an outstanding job of capturing the beauty of that town. Um, it made a lot of people proud. But one thing that is thriving in Norway is they have a Norway baseball museum. It's a little small uh, facility on Main Street in Norway. Um, it's by appointment only. Uh, Shona Fries and Gary Boddicker, you just Google Norway Baseball Museum and you go to their website and they list their phone numbers, their own personal cell phone numbers, and you just call them up and say, hey, I'm going to be in Norway, and I'd like to see the baseball museum. You wouldn't believe how many people from across the country have stopped in there. Um, I get calls and texts and different people reaching out in different ways. I had a guy that was playing, uh, brought his son to the baseball fields here in Marion, the perfect game field, you know, the uh, Prospect Meadows. And they were from uh, Michigan and said, we're going to be there. Can we come by your bank and meet you? You know, and then they, you know, I said, you need to go to the baseball museum. I direct them. They went out and said it it felt like a one-on-one tour of this baseball museum. And, and, you know, Gary or Shona just showed them around and explained everything. And it was like a history lesson. And so, you know, if you have some spare time, don't do like me and wait so many years before I went to the Field of Dreams, go out to Norway and go through this baseball museum. It's it's just amazing. Yeah, I hope to make it out there soon. I almost went out there a couple years ago because A.J. Puck for the Oakland A's, who is my favorite team from Cedar Rapids, him and Mitch Keller were doing bullpen sessions out there. And I was yep. uh, bummed I was, I was not able to go to that, but... Um, Sometime I, I want to do return back there because I did play perfect game growing yep. up there. What was it about the Norway baseball program besides all of the state championships that made it so special? You know, 
one of the things that Jim Vanskoy told me that year that I was his assistant, it was like a college class hanging out with him that whole summer. You know, I just listened. You know, the communication was awesome. I would just listen and take in everything he said. And I asked him the same thing. I said, what is it about this town of Norway that produces Major League Baseball players, college Division One baseball players? You know, we had many baseball players that played in minor leagues that didn't make it to the majors. And he, he told me sitting in that dugout, you know, after one of the practices, he said, Kent, it even amazes me. He said, every spring getting ready for the season, I sit in the dugout and I say, Who's the next Mike Boddicker that's going to walk on this field? And he said, there's always one, you know, or two or three. But he also told me, and I said, so do you work with the kids from eighth grade or eight years old on up? And he goes, I don't have to. He said, our high school kids and even the kids that play town team after they're out of high school, they're on that field all spring long in the summer. They're playing with these younger kids. They're teaching these younger kids. You know, and it also helped that, you know, Norway – back in the day, had four sports. They had basketball, spring baseball, summer baseball, and fall baseball. So that were their four sports, you know. So they got a lot of practice in, and they played a lot of baseball, and they did the sandlot thing, you know. They they would go out there on their own and just play. He said that, you know, Coach Vanskoy said that he'd go out to mow, you know, at 5 o'clock at night, you know, leading up to the season. And there'd be, you know, 18, 20 kids down there just playing a pickup game. So he said he was blessed, you know, that that those kids had the love of the game and they watched it on TV. They practiced it and just enjoyed the game. And he said it was always, you know, a new kid coming out on the field every year that was surprising. In the movie, it was referred to as Madison Community, but in real life, it's Benton Community. Since the Norway program was shut down, why do you think that that program that the Norway kids have fed into hasn't seen the success that Norway did over the years? That's a great question, and I get asked that a lot. Um, Benton Community has had a lot of success. Uh, They've made it to some state tournaments. They've never won the state tournament since uh, they merged with Norway. But to me, it it almost says that's how difficult it is to win a state championship. You know, you can have a lot of good teams. I played on three great teams at Ankeny and 78, 79, and 80, and we didn't win a state championship. We didn't even make it to state. We were ranked in the top 10. And I think it's so difficult, which, you know, to win a state tournament, to get through the, the elimination games, to get to the state tournament, that, you know, I think that it's sometimes looked at as you're, you're not successful, but Benton community has been very successful. It's just, they haven't won a state tournament. And I think someday at some point in time, they will. I, I truly believe that. But I think that just makes it how extraordinary it was that Norway won 20 of them in 25 years. And when I say they won 20 of them, some of them were spring state championship, fall state championship, summer state championships. Um, so it just makes it how special that that team really was. I'm glad I asked that question because when I started this podcast, my focus was always wanting to be positive. And I didn't want any um, negative questions or anything that might sway 
a viewer to think that we're speaking negatively, but you're right. It is, it is really difficult to, to win a state championship. I remember some of my years coaching some of, of our better teams may have fell short. And then there were some years where we were an average team, but we just got hot at the right minute. Or when we were really good, you may face that one pitcher, have a tough bracket that right. the ball just doesn't bounce your way. The the call just doesn't go your way. I know we were in a state semifinal one year and every time they needed a big hit, they got a big blue pit. Every time we needed a big hit, we hit a solid line drive right at somebody and it just unfortunately ended our season. So um, yeah, good luck to Benton community in, in the future. I would love to see that streak broken here at some point. Now the movie talked about a special relationship between you and coach Jim Vanskoy, legendary coach Jim Vanskoy. How did you two meet? How did you come to be on his staff? And he passed the torch to you. Are you guys still in touch today? Absolutely. We're still in touch today. Uh, we go out for breakfast. Oh, probably every other month we'll go to breakfast together and, and it, you know, eating eggs, hash brown, and whatever takes about two and a half hours, three hours, and we just sit there and catch up. And he's still a mentor and role model to me to this day. Um, what a great man. Uh, one of the coolest stories ever of how did this guy from Belle Plaine end up becoming, you know, the assistant baseball coach at this legendary school. And it was all about volleyball. As I told you earlier, you know, my first teaching job in Belle Plaine when the superintendent says, you know, I, I, you, will you coach our junior high volleyball program? A year later, the superintendent comes to me and says, Kent, I know you want to be the varsity baseball coach, but we have one. I can't just fire him because you want the job. But he said, I have another opportunity for you. Would you become our varsity volleyball coach? And I said, absolutely. So by about, oh, 1988, 89, the Bell Plain volleyball team started getting to be really good. I mean, we were ranked in the top 10, top 15 in the state. And um, fall of 1989, we were really good at this point. We got to be really good. And our goal, we hadn't won a, a district title at that point. And so our goal was to win a district title, go on to, you know, get to the state tournament. First round, we beat HLV of Victor 3-0 in, in volleyball, the volleyball match. And the next night, on a, that was on a Monday night. On Tuesday night, Norway was playing Mount Vernon in volleyball at Norway High School Gym in their first round of districts. We were going to play uh, the winner on Thursday night for the district championship. So I thought being that great young coach that I thought I was, I'm driving over to Norway. I'm going over. I'm going to get a scouting report, and we're going to beat whoever we have to play, and, and I'm going to just get this great scouting report. Well, I walk into the Norway gym, and I started heading up the bleachers. And up in the corner, I saw a man. I knew who that man was. It was the legendary Jim Vanskoy. As I said, I you know memorized the big peach section as a kid, so I knew who Jim Vanskoy was. And so I head up the bleachers. I sit about five, six feet away from him. As the volleyball match goes on, I started sliding closer. and cl He probably thought I was stalking him or something. I ended up finally reaching out to him. My hands were just sweaty. My stomach was in knots. I reached out and I said, Coach Vanskoy, I'm Kent Stock from Belle Plaine. We ended up talking that entire night about 
baseball, people we knew in common. And he shared that his longtime assistant baseball coach had resigned and he was looking for a new assistant coach. So again, at the end of the night, my stomach tied knots. I finally said, Coach Vanskoy, would you ever accept an application for your assistant baseball job from a guy from Bell Plain? He looks at me all firm and gruff, you know, kind of like Powers Booth played him in the movie. And he goes, absolutely. Send a letter to my athletic director. And I said, well, who's your athletic director? He goes, me, Jim Vanskoy. <laughs> so two nights, two nights later, Norway kills us in volleyball, three zip. This is before rally scoring. It was like 15-4, 15-5, 15-4. And the next week he calls me and he says, meet me at the Bell Plain Pizza. There is no college class. There's no high school class that ever teach you to be in an interview like this. We sat there for three hours. He talked for two hours and 50 minutes. I maybe talked for 10. I had no idea how, you know, the interview went. And at the end of the night, he goes, would you become my assistant coach? Well, fast forward when we're filming the movie and we were around each other every day for six weeks solid. I said, coach, from that interview, how did you even know to offer me the job? I said, you talked for two hours and 50 minutes. He goes, no, I didn't. And he did. And he goes, number one, he said, that night that we talked in the gym and in the interview, he said, I saw that you had a passion for baseball. And I knew that. Number two, he said, I saw that you had a passion for being a role model and a mentor to my boys. And he goes, the rest, I could teach you how to be an assistant coach. I could teach you about the game of baseball if you didn't know enough. And he said, I knew you did, but he said, that was most important to me, love of the game and a passion to be a mentor and a role model and to get the best out of every athlete on the team. So it was a great story of how I got that job. Jim had some grandsons that uh, passed through Cedar Rapids Jefferson, and um, I believe it was Spencer. We played against him, and he was an eighth grader. And we were playing them, and one of my pitchers, a kid by the name of Jeremy Vossen, threw an absolute gem. And Jim was in the crowd, and at our post-game huddle, I said, Jeremy, great game. You just threw a gem in front of a legend. And all the kids looked at me, legend? What are you talking about? And I said, remember that movie that we watched at my house at the start of the season, the final season? They're like, yeah. I said, the coach, Jim Vanskoy from Norway, he's sitting right there. His grandson is, is Spencer. And, and they thought that that was kind of cool. That is very cool. Yeah, and they're both in pro ball to right now, this day, Spencer and Connor. The main message of the movie, Kent, from the final season was, how do you want to be remembered? To people listening to this, what advice do you have to build on that message? I love those words. How do you want to be remembered? Uh, so for people that haven't seen the movie, and I know you will, it's free on Amazon Prime. So go out to Amazon Prime and you can watch it. But Sean Aston walks into that locker room before that final state championship game. And he does his you know talk before the game to the team and he ends up by saying, today you're playing for everyone who's ever worn a Norway jersey, and they're with you today. So ask yourself one question. How do you want to be remembered? Those words, you know, are on every movie poster. And, you know, as you said earlier, I now do motivational and inspirational speaking. And that's the title of my, my talk is, how do you want to be remembered? It's not a death and dying thing. 
to me, it's more about I challenge everybody in my speaking engagements. I challenge the audience to, to think about on a daily basis, every interaction you have, every person you meet, when you leave that, you know, think about how do you want to be remembered? How will that person remember you? You know, it's in my talks, you know, I, I talk about, you know, it's not motivation. It's hard for me to motivate you. I hopefully that I can inspire you by my message and inspire you to do great things. Um, but it's more about, you know, thinking about, you know, how do you want to be remembered? You know, when when you leave your classroom, how are those kids going to remember you? They, they're not going to remember what you've taught them necessarily, but they're going to remember how you made them feel. They're going to remember Coach Bannon, man, he really made me feel good about life, you know. They don't remember verbs and adjectives and nouns and pronouns and all that. And But, you know, people like my wife do. She corrects me all the time on my English, you know, and she goes, you're a speaker, so you got to speak correctly. But, you know, it's, it's one of those things. They remember how you made them feel. And I think that goes to the message of how do you want to be remembered? You know, what what's the most important thing to you? I spent probably more time looking for my DVD the other night, going through crates and going through storage units because everything you stream now, so all my DVDs and CDs and all of that have been put away into storage than the actual movie. We have Amazon Prime. If you have not seen the final season or if you've seen it, go on Amazon Prime and, and give it another viewing. Great one, movie. One thing. Great message. One thing on that is... The DVD is a two-hour version. For some reason, Amazon Prime plays an hour and a half version. I don't, they cut it to the person that's watching it for the first time. You won't notice anything. People like me that have seen it a hundred times, you know, when you watch it on Amazon Prime, I think, oh yeah, they missed that scene or they missed this scene, you know, but it still plays well. So that's yeah, Amazon Prime, it's free on Amazon Prime. That's interesting. I'm glad I did take the time to find my my copy that I had purchased. And you mentioned the you mentioned the poster. I for some reason when I bought it, I got a tube of promotional posters that showed up to my house. And we were playing a big game and I hung it up in the dugout and just, you know, said, how do you want to be remembered? And it was a team I think we were playing for the third time. And I think I put uh, 3-0, and 2-1. and one. Uh, I can't remember what I put or something along the lines. And I remember that when the game was over, that poster was gone. I think Jack Huffman took it. Um, but uh, yeah, that movie resonates with so many people yeah. of all different ages. But we're talking because we're two people that love baseball. Baseball is, is a game of failure. You can learn a lot from baseball. But how can the game of baseball help us, and I'm sure you talk about this when you speak to people, but help people in their everyday life. Yeah, you know, baseball is a metaphor for life. You know, there's there's so many analogies and different things that you can attribute to the game. Probably one of the most important things, it's a team game, you know, and it, it takes teamwork. You know, it helps you in the setting of, of wherever you're employed. You're going to be working in a team, whether you want to or not. Um, I think working with nine different personalities on the field, you know, another nine kids in the dugout working with an assistant coach, you know, I work with, you know, nine lenders in, in Lynn County at the bank and I have to build a relationship with every one of them. And I think one of the most important things that, that I've learned over the years as a coach, 
and as a boss, as a principal, um, to build a relationship with every person that you're working with, not necessarily a friendship, but a, a, a relationship, you know, and at work sometimes, you know, it's hard to make friends with everybody in your workplace, but build a relationship with them. It doesn't have to be a friendship where you go out and hang out with them all the time, but I think that's what baseball's taught me, you know, that you have to be multifaceted too, you know. You can't just be a great offensive player. You can't be just a great defensive player. You know, you have to have multiple skills, and I think that resonates with people that are going into the job force or going into a new job. Um, be good at what you do, you know, and and have a passion for it, and you'll be good. You know, one of the quotes that I use in my talks is one of my favorite quotes by Abraham Lincoln was, says, whatever you are, be a good one. You know, and I tell people that be a good one, whatever you're doing. If you're pumping gas, you're stocking shelves. If you're an attorney, you're a president of the United States, you're a congressman, you're a banker, whatever you are, be a good one. That's probably the most important thing to me is, is challenging people to, to do great things. You know, just be a good person. I'm jotting notes down here while you talk, uh, things I want to post in my classroom for my students when I see them tomorrow. But when you speak to people of all ages, you've touched upon it a little bit. What are some other messages that you pass along to the crowd when you speak? Perseverance um, is probably one of the things. Um, chasing a dream. You know, I chased my dream uh, to be a baseball player, and I didn't accomplish that goal. But to me, I've accomplished a lot of great things. You know, I ended up being a coach, you know, chasing that dream of being a professional baseball player. I probably not sure that I maybe would have gone to college if I didn't chase that dream of of being a baseball player. So it drove me to go to college to be a baseball player. And it afforded me the opportunity to get a college education. You know, um, I'm not proud of it. Um, when I transferred to Luther College, I about flunked out that first semester. You know, my dad's best friend, who was like a second dad to me, uh, passed away from cancer the summer before I left. I didn't get my goal of being drafted to play professional baseball. And so I started out on a rough note, you know, and, and didn't do well. But basically, when I got home for Christmas and my mom saw my grades, she looked and I said, Mom, I'm a loser. You know, I'm a failure. And she goes, you know, uh, you have a very important decision to make. You know, you can drop out of school, move back home with us, we'll help you get a job, and that's okay. Or you can get your butt back to Luther, get your grades up, and become a teacher and a coach. She just said nothing about becoming eligible to play baseball. It was at that point in my life where baseball meant nothing. You know, it was it was my love of the game, but now it's like, Kent, you need to get your act together. You need to get your grades up. If you want to be a teacher and a coach and a mentor and a role model, you're going through this for a reason. And I really believe that me going through that made an impact on how I was as a teacher and as a coach and as a principal that, you know, keep trying. You know, I, I push people to everyone in here is a failure. My mom told me that day as she, my mom using a Rudy phrase, she's five foot, nothing, a hundred and nothing. She grabbed me by the arm, put me on the sofa next to her. And she started pointing at me, you know, and she said, as to your words of, you know, you're a failure. You know, she said, I want you to remember one thing. Failure isn't final. You know, it's your next decision that you make is the most important decision in your life. 
So it's just challenging people and inspiring them. You know, I share my story, my life story of, of, of what I, how I started, how I am today. And I think those inspirational messages really makes an impact on a lot of people. Um, I've had people all over the United States that reach out to me. Um, you know, those words, how do you want to be remembered? Every speaking engagement, you know, I have a giveaway that I give everybody in the audience. And I put together a window cling, you know, and it's a window cling that they can peel off and put it on a mirror, put it on a window. And it just says, <coughs> just says the, those words, how do you want to be remembered? And I have one up, you know, every morning as I brush my teeth and get ready to go to work, I look up and there it is. How do you want to be remembered? Kind of gets me started in the day. And at the end of the day, um, you know, and I'm brushing my teeth before I go to bed, it's there and it helps me reflect on the day. Did I accomplish my goal? And I'm not perfect. Believe me, you know, I'm, I'm not perfect, but it's always there for a, as a reminder for me. Great message from Coach Kent Stock. Kent, what do you like to do in your free time? Well, you know, that's that's awesome. I I couple things. Number one, I love spending time with my family. You know, I have a wife of twenty five years and two daughters who are twenty two and twenty three, soon to be twenty four. Um, hanging out with them. Actually, uh, you know, I got a birthday coming up, so we spent the weekend in Galena and the the four of us and just hung out and played games and um, so I love hanging out with my family. Um, and probably my biggest hobby outside of watching Cardinals baseball is I, I love to golf. So I, I'm an avid golfer, not very good, but I, I just love to play. And I'm blessed that my wife loves to play as much as me. So that, that helps. You also have a great alma mater in Luther because that is our halfway point. We have a lot of friends in Minnesota and Toplin Goliath is always a great place to stop and have a nice cold beer. They have great sours there, but they have some of the best chicken wings I've ever had. If you're in Decor, if you're in Luther, you got to check out Toplin Goliath. Any suggestions on Decorah, Kent, uh, for people to to eat at or, or drink at if they're ever in that area or Loris or Clark or UD makes a trip to play them. Yeah. You know, you, you, you have to have the mainstay Mabe's pizza in Decorah. You know, it's one of those things where I'll drive up two hours. My brother lives in Decorah. So I'll drive up there just to get a Mabe's pizza and um, love it. They have two breweries actually in town. They have Pulpit Rock and, and Topping Goliath. And I, I just loved going to Topping Goliath because they don't serve food at Pulpit Rock, but they do serve food at, at Toppling Goliath and the sours. I love the sours and it's just a, a great place to hang out and beautiful facility indoors and out. So um, I love Decorah. It's a great place. Kent, last question. And it's, it's kind of a cheesy one. And I stole your tagline before we hit into that podcast killing double play. But how does Kent Stock want to be remembered when it's all said and done? Well, to, to be truthful, and I get a little choked up, but I hope that I'm remembered as a great husband, a great father, and a friend to all. If I can accomplish those three things in, in my life, that's the most important to me. Kent Stock, inspiration, 
behind the movie, the final season, motivational, inspirational speaker, also author. If you haven't checked out his book, definitely a good read. And um, Kent, again, I can't uh, thank you enough. I'm, I'm geeking out here uh, while I'm getting ready to do my tagline. Uh, thanks again for doing this. I, I really, really appreciate it. It, it was my pleasure. I've had a great time doing this. Um, not to make a big cheesy pitch, but if anybody is looking for a speaker, I speak at statewide associations, corporations, companies. Uh, I speak to teachers and coaches, and um, they can just go to my website. It's kentstock.com. So easy to remember and just hit the contact us button and it sends me an email and I'd, I'd love to come and share my message with whoever wants to hear it. Kent, thanks again. 643, we're out of here. Postgame show is brought to you by... Christ, I can't find it. The hell with it. Thank you for listening to the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast. Don't forget to stop by Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star review and also subscribe on Spotify.